0: Uh, called, the, called the square dancing, and, and I saw them in all of its fellowship hall, and I, th- I said, good morning, and it was 6.30 at night. Um, anyways, let me just say, as you are flipping there, grateful for y'all. As Jeff said, y- y'all have supported RUF uh, Winthrop for, for many, many, many years, and uh, the longer we're there, this is year 10 uh, for Catherine and I and, and our kids, and uh, we're, we're, we're extremely grateful for y'all, and the longer we are there, the more... Uh, we are dependent upon Jesus and dependent upon his church. Uh, we, we can't do this without y'all. And so thank you for your prayers and your support. It, it, it's, it is quite literally essential uh, to what we do. So we're really grateful for y'all. And uh, it's fun to see some of our college students here as well. So I'm super grateful for you guys. This is God's word for each of us this morning um, between the hours of 11 and 12. I'm just as a reminder for myself. Galatians chapter... well, let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will also he reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. If we do not give up, so then, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh." Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together this morning to worship you, to enjoy you. Lord, we know that everyone in this room is, is going through various and wide, difficult, and different circumstances. And Father, whether people here arrive with, with joy, with excitement, with great sadness, with difficulty, with anxiety, Lord, where, wherever they are, we pray that your spirit would be upon them that he would calm their hearts, that he would open the eyes of their hearts to behold wonderful things of your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you've got about six weeks, I just found this out, until George Clooney's movie, Boys in the Boat, comes out. So you've got six weeks to read the book or audio it, if you're an audio person, that's acceptable. If you're like, I don't like to read, that's okay. Audio book is the same thing. It's still a book. So Check it out from the library. If you don't have the, the app from the York County Library, we got Libby, we got Hoopla. Check it out. It's great. Boys in the Boat by Daniel James Brown. And if you don't know the story, I've, I've come to discover that if you're a Clemson person, you actually have like a, a rowing crew team, which is kind of astonishing to me because I didn't know that that was a thing that anybody did uh, outside of this 1936 book. Well, the book's recent, but it's about this 1936 University of Washington Olympic eight-man crew team all right listen to how the author speaks about rowing it, if if you are young and interested in getting into it it sounds horrible but the payoff sounds amazing all right this is what the author says one of the fundamental challenges in rowing is that when another one member of a crew goes into a slump the entire crew goes with him no offense to baseball or basketball a baseball team or a basketball team may very well triumph even if it's star players off his game, but the demands of rowing are such that every man or woman in a racing shell depends on his or her crewmates to po- to perform almost flawlessly with each and every pull of the oar. The movements of each rower are so intimately intertwined, so precisely synchronized with the movements of all the others, that any one rower's mistake or subpar performance can throw off the tempo of the stroke, the balance of the boat, and ultimately the success of the whole crew. More often than not, it comes down to a lack of concentration on one man's part, right? For an eight man rowing team plus their coxswain, everything is centered on one thing and one thing alone, right? Every single minute movement for the entire however many meters that they have to row is centered on getting to the same thing. It's getting to the finish line, right? It's oriented all around getting to the finish line together. Everything, everything is filtered through that. And so as we come to the end of Paul's letter to the Galatians, everything in this letter, everything in the gospel, everything in the Christian life is centered around one thing as well. The cross of Jesus. Everything begins and ends there. Paul's entire life, if you read any of Paul's letters, it's all centered around the cross of Jesus. And as he wrote this letter to the Galatians, their life used to be focused on this as well. Their life was oriented around the gospel, the cross of Jesus. But like every other letter in the New Testament that was written to a specific people for a specific reason, Paul is writing to the Galatians for a specific reason. And that reason he gives us into the beginning of Galatians 1. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you and the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. In other words, the Galatians, they used to center their lives around the cross of Jesus. But now they've centered their lives around a different lens, a different gospel, a different horizon, a different linchpin. They are now focusing their life on something entirely different. And so Paul, as he wraps up the letter of Galatians, he's once again, he's calling the Galatians, he's calling you and I, he's saying, come back to the gospel. Come back to the cross of Jesus. Find your identity in the gospel of Jesus Christ and His cross and His cross alone. Let that be the thing which all of your life revolves around. So, two thoughts for this morning: What's a life look like that does not revolve around the cross of Christ, and a life that does? A life that does. Sorry. Sometimes in Ruf, like one side of the room is like the the um, I don't want to say the bad side, but. So your side of the room is you're the life that doesn't revolve around the cross of Jesus, and this side of the room does. But you guys can come over here. You, you, all right. So a life that does not revolve around the cross of Jesus and a life that does, all right? So we read the last verse of chapter 5 because that helps us really understand the entire thrust of Paul's message as he finishes out his letter. He says, let us not become conceited provoking one another, envying one another. So that last verse helps us really understand the last thrust of Paul's letter. It helps us understand chapter 6. And so we see the word conceit. F.F. Bruce uh, gives us another translation that I think helps us get to the root and the heart of that word conceit. And another word would be vainglory or empty glory. So Paul is saying if you center your lives... If you live a life of vain glory, if you live a life of empty glory, if you live a life of not revolving your life around the cross of Jesus, then every single relationship that you enter into is going to be a transactional relationship. It's going to be like a business agreement, right? When you enter into a relationship with somebody with vain glory, with empty glory, you're going to look at the other person and you're going to say, what can this person do for me? What can I get out of? Of this person. And if that person, that relationship that you have, offers you nothing, then you will drop that relationship. You don't need that relationship anymore, right? And this enthr- this flows into the rest of this passage. Because if we are conceited, if we are vainglorious, Paul says, if you attempt to restore your brother or sister in Christ. Commentators believe that being spiritual here means being full of the Holy Spirit. So if you are a vain, glorious person, if you are an empty, glory person, then you can't restore your brother or sister in Christ. It's not possible because all you're trying to do is get something out of that person, right? And then this flows into verse 6. When Paul is saying to the church of Galatia, he's not simply saying to those who teach you, share words of encouragement, but to literally share with them material Help so that your pastor can do their job. And what is your pastor job? Your pastor job, in essence, is to point the people, is to point you to Jesus, is to remind you of who God is. However, if either one of you is vainglorious, if either one of you is conceited, what does that relationship begin to look like, right? It turns into a what-can-you-do-for-me relationship. Right? If your pastor, I'm not saying this specifically about your pastors, although one of them's not here, so I can throw him under the bus. Just kidding. I love Dave. Right? What is the pastor going to do when he relates to you? He's going to look at you and say, what can you do for me? When I enter into a relationship, when I meet with you, it's going to be, what can you do for me? Right? What can you offer me? How can you get me ahead of life? However, if you enter into a relationship with your pastor, and it's a vainglorious relationship... Right? It's, it's what can my pastor do for me? What can my pastor do for me? And if, if that pastor doesn't do what you want them to do, right, you can make it very hard on their life or you can go on to the next pastor who's going to do it for you. Right? This all flows into verses 7 through 10. If you're a vainglorious person living a life full of envy, comparing yourself to others, trying to, trying to make yourself look great, trying to get ahead in life, trying to, trying to make your name made known... What does Paul say to this in verse 7? He says, you can live a life where you're trying to make yourself look great. You can live a life where you are trying to get ahead in life. You can live a transactional business relationship life with others. But what does Paul say in verse 7? You may think you have everyone fooled, but you can not mock God. You can try to mock God, but God will not be mocked because what ultimately if you live a vainglorious life you are sowing seeds of the flesh verse 8 paul says you will only reap corruption the greek word here is like a rotting corpse eventually it'll show right eventually it'll show daniel james brown book boys in the boat The, the conclusion i won't give any of it away is in 1936, Nazi Berlin. And if you read about Nazi Berlin in 1936, when reporters came, when athletes came, it was a beautiful, pristine city. It looked incredible, it was an amazing city, everything ran well, there was no homelessness, everything was beautiful on the outside, and what was that all showing? right? It all gave away. Within a few years, Nazi Germany's true colors came out. Did they not? You knew that all this beauty and this pristine, it can't last forever. Eventually, Nazi Germany's true and ugly colors began to show. If you live a transactional life, if you live a vainglorious life, if you live a life of trying to get ahead, of trying to make a name for yourself, right? Can a toddler's diaper hidden for so long (laughs) all right eventually the smell comes to permeate the whole house or the nursery right or the proof is in the pudding which comes from the proof of the pudding is in the eating something might look good until you dig in and you can only hide it for so long we had the uh the barn dance, and five people made chili, and I made a chili, and they all kind of looked the same, but you knew that mine was, was the worst of the five. It was functional. And sometimes I like to say, we just need calories. Right? God cannot be mocked. If you try to live a conceited, vainglorious life, it'll eventually show for who you really are. This type of person then flows into verses 12 and 13 as those that make a good showing of the flesh. Paul here is then specifically talking about a specific group of people. He's talking about the Judaizers. The Judaizers, we learn in Acts 15, are referenced in the Jerusalem council. They believed unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So the Judaizers were were preaching this Jesus where you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to get circumcised. And they're teaching this message because of their vainglory. Because ultimately, Paul tells us in verse 12, they're doing this because they are afraid. They are afraid what will happen to them if they are found out to believe in Jesus. Paul says, only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. The original persecutors for the Christians were the Jews. We know this, as, as Jeff shared with us earlier, Paul, the apostle Paul persecuted... As a Jew, he persecuted Christians. And so the author of Galatians, right, he despised, he hated, he persecuted Jews who became Christians. And so the Judaizers are saying, we can kind of have it both ways. We can have it both ways. We can encourage people to believe in Jesus. But if they're Gentiles, we're then going to encourage them to get circumcised. And then if they're circumcised, if they act culturally Jewish, if they look culturally Jewish, then the Jews are not going to... Persecute them, But they're doing this out of fear. They don't want to disturb the peace, right? They want to keep things comfortable. They want to keep the gospel of Jesus. They want to keep it compartmentalized. But in essence, they're neutering the gospel for everything that it was worth. Have you ever had the opportunity to go to counter in downtown Rock Hill? We live in Rock Hill. And uh, this kind of makes me think of the civil rights movement in the 60s we were at the National Civil Rights Museum during General Assembly in June, and Rock Hill was actually uh, not, well, Rock Hill was mentioned in, in some good ways, but it makes me think of like, what, was, what were we doing when this was happening, right? What was the Church of Jesus Christ doing in the middle of the Civil Rights Movement, and more often than not, the, civil, the Church and the Civil Rights Movement was looking at our black brothers and sisters in Christ and saying, we will gain nothing if we serve them. We will gain nothing if we look out for our black brothers and sisters in Christ, if we stand up for them. We looked at them more often than not and said, you offer me nothing, so I will not step in. I will not serve you, I will not love you, I will not be there for you. What about today? What are some ways that perhaps we are doing that today, that we are in fact living like the Judaizers? It's a question I think we need to ask ourselves. Are there groups of people in our lives that we look at and we say, those people offer me nothing, so I'm not going to enter into a relationship with them. This happened earlier in Galatians. The apostle Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. He used to eat with his Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ, and he pulled away from them because he was afraid of what his Jewish Christian brothers would say about him. So the apostle Paul calls him out. He calls them out. He calls them out. And who or what group of people are you not willing to associate with because you're afraid of how others will think about you? The Judaizers wanted the Gentile Christians to get circumcised because they're afraid of the persecution that might come. But there's something else going on there as well. To sketch a graphic picture... What are the Judaizers boasting about? Look at verse 13. They're boasting in the flesh of the Gentile Christians who are come to be circumcised. This is a very graphic play on words. Look at how many fleshes we have. They're literally counting the number of fleshes of those who have been circumcised. I don't think any of us would be so bold to say that. But it's another question to ask ourselves how do we measure our Christianity? How do we measure our Christianity? I think more often than not, we measure our Christianity on what we do rather than who we are, right? At the end of the day, we're like, oh, man, I, I prayed a lot. At the end of the day, oh, I, I had a quiet time or, or I didn't have a quiet time. At the end of the day, like, oh, man, my kids were really, really good. I must have been a really good Christian today. Or the, or the opposite. Man, my Christian, my Christian, my children, man, they were a mess today. I must not be a really godly or faithful Christian or maybe it's related to your work or to your school, like how well you're doing at school, how well you're doing at work, or whether you think you're sinning a little versus whether or not you're sinning a lot on the number of people you talked to Jesus about or the number of people you didn't talk to Jesus about. Right? Like I think in many, many ways, we might not be as clear and obvious as the Judaizers boasting in the fleshes of the circumcisions, but we do boast in the things that we do or don't do. I think we more often than not measure our Christianity this way. And so what does Paul say to this? In verse 13, he says, even the circumcised, they cannot keep the law. Right? Even those who think that are, that they're great, even those that think they do all the right things, even those that live a really good life, they don't keep the law either. Y'all, it's impossible. We're working through the Sermon on the Mount in our small groups of the RUF, like we can't do it. That's that's one of the main messages of of the Bible. We can't live up to the standards of God. It is impossible. Even if you're really good at keeping a list. Paul's going back to, he's like, God can't be mocked, y'all. God cannot be mocked. The proof is in the pudding. In other words, Paul's kind of saying, if you want to try to live a vainglorious life, give it a shot. Go ahead, try. Try. You cannot keep it up. You cannot keep it up. And there's a lot of weightiness. I think. This is the point where my wife, Catherine, would be like, is there any hope? <laughs> and I do think we need to feel a little bit of the weightiness of a vainglorious life, that we can, we can try this all we want. And so what is the answer? Because I think more often than not, what we want is like, all right, if we can't do this, if we can't live this life, if we will never live up to the standards of God, and sometimes in our response, it's like, all right, now tell me what to do. Like, well, that's kind of the same thing. Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor in London, England, in the 1930s through 60s, he said this. He said, the Christian gospel places all its primary emphasis on being rather than doing. The gospel puts a greater weight upon our attitude than upon our actions. Its main stress is what you and I essentially are rather than what we do. Being is more important than doing. Attitude is more significant than action, he continues. A Christian is something before he does anything. We have to be Christians before we can act as Christians. Right, we can say, stop being vainglorious. Stop being a person full of empty glory. Stop living transactional business-like relationships. But that's only gonna last for a moment. You and I know that. Anytime we attempt to change ourselves on our own strength, it only lasts for a little bit. And so what you and I need is what Paul says in verse 15. What matters, not circumcision, not following the law. What matters is a new creation. Because the Christian gospel places all of its emphasis first and foremost upon being rather than doing. The Christian gospel placed all its primary emphasis on being rather than doing. How does the gospel emphasize this goes all the way to the beginning? The gospel emphasized this in verse 14, but far be it for me to boast, except in what? In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the answer to a vainglorious person? What's the answer to living a life of conceit? It's to look to the cross. It's to believe in the cross of Jesus Christ. As John Stott says, nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. Nothing cuts us down to size like the cross. What's he getting at? He continues, all of us, I think this this was written years ago. He says, all of us have inflated views of ourselves especially in self-righteousness, until we visit a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. At the foot of the cross, if you are conceited, if you are a vainglorious person, we look to the cross because we can never live up to its ideals, and it shrinks us to the right size. But I also think it's helpful, what if you're a low self-esteem person? Right? What if you're a low self-esteem person? What if you're a person who thinks about yourself so lowly? What does the cross do? It rises us up to our true size. Because of the cross, it says you are good enough because of what Jesus has done. At the cross, it says you are beloved. At the cross, it says your sins are forgiven. At the cross, it says you can have a relationship with God because of Jesus. At the cross, you're good enough. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Without the cross y'all we will continue to life to live a life of doing rather than being The cross is everything for those that believe It's everything. It's everything. We know that God loves us because of the cross of Jesus. For the cross of Jesus. I love the quote uh, the 2018 Christopher Robin movie. It's got Ewan McGregor. It's, uh, it's about Winnie the Pooh. And uh, uh, Christopher Robin is now like a grown man working uh, in downtown, I don't know if they call it downtown London. He's working in London somewhere. And uh, Winnie the Pooh has, has come to life. And Christopher Robin is shocked, obviously, because his stuffed animal is alive and talking to him. And he goes, I haven't thought about you in 30 years. And Winnie the Pooh goes, I think about you every day. Right? At the cross, Jesus thinks about you all the time. All the time. He thinks about you. He's aware of you. He knows you. He loves you because the cross. And so for the Christian, for those that believe, the cross of Christ is the fulcrum, is the linchpin that, all of our life turns around. Where you are no longer an old creation, you are a new creation. And as a new creation, Paul says, the world is crucified to you. The world, the world and all of its everything, no longer has dominion over you. No longer has sway over you. Y'all, does not, do you not feel like the world around you is constantly telling you, guilty, guilty, guilty. And at the cross of Jesus... You are innocent. At the cross of Jesus, you are forgiven. But I think in many ways, verse 14, Paul also says, you've been crucified to the world. Because I think in many ways, for for many of you, your flesh is saying, guilty, guilty, guilty. It's coming out from inside. It's saying, in so many ways, you just feel like you're wrong. And at the cross of Jesus... You can say to your flesh, I'm innocent, I'm righteous, I'm no longer guilty, I am beloved. Everything needs to be measured at the cross. So how do we move from this transition transition of being into doing? That's hard, is it not? It's a hard transition. And Paul says, make no mistakes, Paul says if you're going to live the life centered around the cross of Jesus, the crucified life, it's going to be a long and hard and difficult road. And that vainglorious self is going to rear its ugly head over and over and over again. Paul says he has the marks of Christ on him. Boys in the Boat author says on rowing, it's not a question of whether you will hurt or how much you will hurt. It's a question of what you will do and how well you will do with it while pain has your wanton way. Paul isn't saying go seek out pain and misery, but it's coming if it's not already there. It's coming. But Paul also says, on the other hand, you know what else will follow you? Peace and mercy, y'all. This is the tension of the Christian life, is it not? not. On the one hand, the marks of Christ. On the other hand, the peace and the mercy of Christ. Let me finish with Boys in the Boat. This will be my last time I go to it. I apologize if you read this book and find it extremely boring. At least you can, maybe the movie, you'll like the movie. One of the main characters is Joe. And so the author says, For Joe, who'd spent the last six years doggedly making his own way in the world, grew up as a child of the Depression, who'd forged his identity on stoic self-reliance. Nothing was more frightening than allowing himself to depend on others. Maybe you can relate to that. Nothing is more frightening than being dependent upon others. This is what I want to see here. The author continues, Humility was a common gateway through which they were able to now come together and begin to do what they had not been able to do before. Joe could finally abandon all doubts, Trust absolutely without reservation that he and the boy in front of him and the boys behind him would, do all, would all do precisely what they needed to do at precisely the instant they needed to do it. As we come to the cross, may we come humbly. We can't come to the cross of Jesus transactionally. We've got nothing to offer him except our guilt and our shame and our sin. Boasting in the cross is trusting and believing that Jesus has done and will continue to do precisely what he needs to do at the instant he needs to do it, right? Because we are new creations. If you are a new creation, if you've trusted in Christ, if you are a new creation because of his cross, then we can look at others. We can look at one another. We can look at our neighbor not transactionally. And we can move in circles that maybe we're afraid to move in. Because of the cross, because of Jesus' grace and mercy and love, as it flows through you, right, we can move towards others, not trying to get anything out of them. And as you experience pain and suffering, because of the cross, you can keep going. You can keep going. Let me finish with um, the chorus from the hymn, Oh, the Wonderful Cross. Oh, the wonderful cross, oh, the wonderful cross, bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. Oh, the wonderful cross, oh, the wonderful cross, all who gather here by grace drawn near and bless your name. It doesn't make any sense, but at the cross, as we die to ourselves, as we, Jesus gives us life. Jesus gives us hope. Jesus gives us grace to continue and to carry on. Would you all pray with me?